You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommy and Well Muslim Podcast. You can see me flying solo today because Zeba has COVID for the, I think it's the sixth time, maybe it's the fifth time. I definitely don't think I'm underestimating that, but please keep her in your prayers because Man, y'all East Coast people, the immunity just stinks. Y'all need some more sun or come out to Phoenix and just stay here. Like, that's what I think. But keep her in your prayers. Let's uh, wish her a speedy recovery because we need to get her to work. Because as you know, the Mommy One Muslim Retreat in Dallas is coming up. That's probably why her immunity is compromised because she's working pretty much 24-7 to bring the absolutely best experience to Muslim women and moms who are attending. Day passes are up for sale. So please go ahead, go to our website, hit the 2023 FUYC, fill up your cup retreat tab and go ahead and purchase those. I think we have day passes available for Saturday. Check our social media because we're rolling out our guests that are coming Um, Just kind of letting you know who they are. A lot of them are popular names, so you might recognize them. You'll definitely, definitely want to attend. And I think the most important two words that are there are halal barbecue. It's Texas, y'all. So of course we had to bring you halal barbecue. We got it. You know the food is going to be off the hook. And this time my chai is going to be served. So I'm super duper excited for the high tea. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about direct primary care really quickly because I launched a practice last week and I know Zeba was going to ask me questions about it, but I'll just kind of introduce it. Uh, Yes, I'm a big HP nerd. And so, yes, it's an homage to HP fandom. Um, If you don't know what HP is, that stands for Harry Potter. But FoxMD is direct primary care. And for anybody who doesn't know what direct primary care is, it is when you pay your doctor And you see your doctor when you need your doctor. I know. It's like crazy, crazy, easy, stupid, simple medicine so that you don't have to go through insurances and authorizations. For instance, my dad is having chest pain and shortness of breath. So I sent him to the cardiologist. I was like, you know, you had a heart attack a year and a half ago. I think you need to go see the cardiologist. And the cardiologist is like, yeah, he definitely needs to go back to the lab so that we can go look at his arteries and see if those stents we put in are blocked. Well, we couldn't get a date for a week with his ongoing chest pain and shortness of breath because insurance has to authorize a man, a 78-year-old man, a 75-year-old man with chest pains, shortness of breath. They have to authorize the procedure. So that kind of stuff is why um, doctors are banding together and saying, this is a load of hooey and we are not going to participate in this kind of um, uh, ignorance and neglect. Really, it's medical neglect. So we need to change the system. Look up direct primary care. That's everybody's homework. And then we're going to jump right in into February because we know you've been waiting all year long for our February series because, you know, so have we. The season of love is upon us. So we're super duper excited. And you know, we don't do February without covering everybody's favorite topic that they are not honest enough or, you know, comfortable enough to admit which is sex, Uh, a completely biased study uh, from May 2022 found that people think about sex eight times a day. So it's not every eight seconds. Like that's a myth. Apparently this study was funded by a company that promotes um, sex products. So of course it's a little bit biased, but 
eight times a day is still a lot. Uh, Zeba will say that she doesn't even think about it once, but I don't know. I think she's a normal person except for the whole having COVID six times. Um, it's definitely eight times a day is definitely less than either of us thought. Like I thought it was at least every hour, but you know, we'll take eight. So this year we're going to cover some of the things that create issues with sex. Our first podcast episode is going to be with one of our favorite guests, um, ever Muslim sex coach, Dr. Sadaf Lodi. Dr. Lodi is a board certified OBGYN and sex coach for women. She's a doctor of osteopathic medicine from Michigan State University. Yay. I know it's Wolverines, right? But she'll correct me on that if I'm wrong. And she's a certified life and executive coach from Rutgers University. That is where I used to study for the MCAT. Um, she's also had additional training with the Sexuality Council Counseling and Education Program through the University of Michigan. Welcome, Dr. Sada Floody. Yeah, well, thank you so much, uh, Uzma. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And actually, Michigan State is Spartans, not Spartans. Sorry. The University of Michigan are Wolverines. I can just hear like every all the Michigan fans. Like, all the, they're like hating me right now. What did you do? It's, uh, <laughs> Obviously, I'm not from Michigan. Sorry, guys. Um, and my cousins are not football fans or anything, so I don't yeah. know. Um, but we are super excited to have you. We like to kick off the podcast always by asking a little bit about your momming story and your momming philosophy, whatever you're comfortable sharing. Yeah, my momming story. So um, I became a first-time mom uh, in 2006, and um, I have three three beautiful boys. And um, my second son actually was uh, with Clomid. You know, I had a little bit of a hard time. I had a miscarriage and then I had my second son. I used Clomid. And then uh, my youngest um, was spontaneous, like happened on its own. And um, so that's my momming story. And Alhamdulillah, they are um, 12, 14, and 16. And um and my momming philosophy is that um, I'm a little strict. <laughs> I'm a little intense. So um, I okay. expect uh, things and uh, to be done when they're supposed to be done. And uh, respect is actually a huge thing in our house. And uh, we encourage and make sure that our three boys show respect to not only their parents, but also to each other and are kind to each other. So that's, those are big things, big values in our house. I'm so in love with that. And I feel like I just created like two more podcast series or at least one podcast series because the sibling rivalry at my house is insane right now. So we actually had to have a family meeting about the, you're doing a good job respecting your parents, but you need to do a better job respecting each other. Like that is you know, and I, I think regardless of the genders and ages of your kids, that is something that, you know, a lot of moms struggle with. So I love that, you know, you're bringing that to the forefront, but also thank you so much for talking about Clomid because I don't think a lot of people, a lot of, uh, Muslim women that I know are open about any of their infertility struggles. And we do have an infertility series coming up where moms will be coming on to share their stories, but it was so hard to get people uh, recruited to guest for that series because a lot of people don't want to admit that I had issues and, you know, I don't know, in your practice, is that a, a common thing that you see where women are coming and then they, they feel like maybe their body is not doing something that they think it's supposed to be doing? Like, what is, what is the reason why some women, and this is completely off today's topic, but what are some reasons why women 
feel like they can't be open about any assistance that they got um, in pregnancy. I think, you know, sometimes it's about uh, our thoughts, right? And like, what are our thoughts telling us? And sometimes our thoughts tell us that, well, you know, we should be able to have a baby spontaneously. This is what I'm made for. This is what the way my body's supposed to function. And so if I'm not able to have a baby on my own spontaneously, then perhaps I'm a failure, right? Perhaps my body is a failure and there's something wrong with me. And so if there's something wrong with me, then I'm not going to let other people know that there's something wrong with me because then I'll be a fraud and, you know, I'll be an imposter and maybe yeah. it's just, I'm not perfect. And maybe other people see me as being perfect, but I'm really not. And so I just don't want to come out as a fraud, you know, but I think a lot of people yeah. are ashamed. They're embarrassed, right? That why, why isn't it happening for me? You know, they walk around, they see other women that are pregnant and it just seems so easy, so simple. Right. And, and why is it that I can't, I mean, being an OBGYN and um, you know, I, I see pregnant women all the time. And I remember when I was struggling and I'd be like, gosh, you know, like I see all these women, some of the women do not even want to have these babies, right? And why is it so difficult for me to get pregnant? And, you know, I take care of myself, I eat well, blah, 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 I exercise, you know, why, why can't I just get pregnant, right? So it's definitely a internal st uh, struggle. And I think it has to do with a lot of the thoughts and the things that we tell ourselves. Yeah, I might clip this out and use it in our infertility series, because I think it's really important to hear from a doctor's perspective, too. Yeah. Um, some of the things that you encounter on the other side of the bed, but you've been on both sides of the bed. So you know how it is. Yeah. And as a physician, I know that I struggled with a lot of that guilt and shame too. And I really hated going to baby showers. I actually think I, I really resented my friends who were yeah. easily having kids. I got started late too. Yeah. So it was like, there's so much to catch up on. And I thought like my ovaries burned out. <laughs> And I was like, this statistically, like I should still be able to do this. I'm still young enough, but it's not happening. Like what's wrong with yeah. me yeah. was the issue, you know? And it was like you said, it was my thoughts yes. and reining those in was really, really difficult. Yeah. You know, alhamdulillah, it happened eventually when it was supposed to, but I hope that anybody who hears this knows that it's perfectly normal. It's actually pretty common, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. You know, I can't tell you the statistics offhand, but yes, it's very common. And, and we also have to remember, right, that it's not, it's not always women. Um, when I was going through residency, you know, we would hear that 40% of infertility was male factor. And in fact, I think now it's 50%. So it's half yeah. and half. And, um, yeah. and so I think that, you know, before women start blaming themselves, they have to understand that there's a whole workup that goes into this, right? It's not just like yeah. you're not able to get pregnant. There's something wrong with you and, you know, you, you need to do something about it. It's no, there has to be workup. And, and of course, you know, um, as you know, that if you're over the age of 35 and if you haven't gotten pregnant within six months, you need to go see an infertility specialist. Don't just sit around. Don't wait for it to happen just go. The sooner you get help, yeah. the sooner, hopefully, that you'll be able to conceive. Inshallah. Inshallah. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. You know, I, I appreciate that tangent because, you know, I'm a nerd. Mm -hmm. I like it. Uh, but tell us a little bit about your inspiration to pursue OBGYN as a specialty and maybe, you know, I, I'm just giving the initials, maybe spell out what that means for those people who don't know. And then how that kind of snowballed 
if you will, into your life as a sex oh, coach. Yeah, absolutely. So, so for me, you know, what was really important is that growing up, I didn't really see too many role models for myself in where I grew up. And, um, I was in the Midwest and, you know, lots of women, um, were professionals. I didn't, I just didn't see that many though in my, um, you know, the community that I grew up in. And I saw there's one auntie that I can remember specifically, you know, and she was a psychiatrist at the time. Um, and there was one OBGYN that I knew of. Um, and, and that was really it. I didn't have very many role models. And so in fact, the, the OB that I knew, she was this amazing woman and <laughs> she always told me that, uh, don't do OB. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, which is what I think most people tell women or whoever not to do OB. But, you know, unfortunately for me, I loved OB and um, it's, you know, you either hate it or you love it. And I and I loved it. Mm -hmm. And uh, what really drew me to OB was uh, the focus on women's health. I just felt that women, um, you know, growing up, I felt like women were often in the shadows. They didn't uh, speak out much. They weren't. Um, definitely just weren't present uh, enough for me. And I wanted to be a voice for the women that I saw that weren't represented, whether it was in medicine or even in, you know, in this community or the society, whatever. So um, I wanted to be that voice. And so for me, it was really important to become an OBGYN and be that voice for women. I love that. That's all like excellent inspiration. And I, I, it's funny because I had the absolute opposite experience where people were like, oh, you have to be OB because there aren't enough Muslim, uh, OBs and we don't want our women going to men or non-Muslim women. We want you to take care of them. So that, and then there was the whole religious contingency who was like, it's haram for you to be a doctor if you have to touch men. So you can only do OB or pediatrics. I know, I know. Naturally, I didn't marry into any of those families who said that. <laughs> so, I don't know about that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no. Islamically, I don't think there's any grounds for it. But I'm not a scholar. I don't know. I did it. I touch men. And, you know, look at that. I'm committed to my husband and not aroused by any of the 80-year-olds I touch. Look at that. Um, so in any case, how did the OB and this, you know, working with women's health in particular lead you down the path to sex coaching? Because that, I didn't know that was a thing until I believe fourth year, third year of medical school, that sex coaches were a thing. And at that time we called them sex therapists. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, there, there are sex therapists, right? So, so there are, so there's a sex therapy tract and there's like, you can do sex coaching or sex counseling. So those are actually separate things. So, you know, for sex therapists, you know, you have those therapists or you know, psychologists, whatever that go on and do additional training with um, a sex education course to become and get certified as sex therapist. Um, the sex coaching and the counseling are for people that are not therapists, but still get that sexual education training. And so then they can become like a coach or um, a counselor or an educator, which is actually the track that I'm following through the University of Michigan. So um, because I am a physician, but I'm not a therapist. So that's, that's the distinction there. Um, and the reason why I found that it was, um, you know, something that I was interested in was because one, as you know, Uzma, uh, you know, in medical school, we don't get very much training 
on uh, sex education or sexual health and wellness and things like that. And, uh, and being a gynecologist myself and having patients come to me and ask me those very personal questions, you know, I just felt that I didn't have the knowledge that I should have uh, to be able to address the situation or the question. And I just wanted to know more. And I felt that in, you know, in our culture, in the Muslim culture, but specifically um, with Muslim women, I just felt that we didn't have enough education, right? And I wanted to be the one to empower women and to educate them about, because already, you know, I'm a gynecologist and they're already coming to me for, you know, to with issues of the reproductive tract. And to me, it only made sense that then I add this also into my uh, services that I provide and am able to counsel women not only about their reproductive, you know, tract and things like that, but also about something as intimate and personal as sex and intimacy. And I felt that, you know, if um, if I knew, if I learned more on that topic, I could make these women feel more comfortable about a topic that they perhaps feel uncomfortable about. Yeah. Yeah. And outside of like, you know, very nuanced, uh, sexually ambiguous jokes that aunties sometimes would like, you know, they would share with each other in our presence. Like it was as a kid, I'm like, I didn't understand it. Now as an adult looking back, it's like, oh, they were dirty aunties talking about that stuff, but they were talking about it, but not talking about it at the same time. And then like humorously, But when I look back, it's like, no, that was pathology that somebody needed to address. I wonder if they ever talked to a doctor about it. And like the likelihood is that no, because they didn't have doctors that they trusted um, and probably doctors weren't trained at the time. Um, I had exactly three hours in sex therapy training in in my entire medical career. Um, and that was that third year of medical school where half the time, because the Muslim guy sat in the front and the Muslim girl sat in the back and we just all tried not to make eye contact for three hours. It was, it was, it was interesting to say the least, but um, yeah, I wish, I wish we could have done better yeah. for ourselves and for our patients. So I'm glad that you're on that track. So in your experience as a sex coach, what are some of the most common hangups? Like let's say three most common hangups about sex that Muslim Muslim women in particular have? Yeah. So I think, you know, a, a lot of the questions that I get from women in general, um, not even just Muslim women, right, but it's just women in general, is that they experience decreased arousal, decreased libido, right? They often find sex to be a chore, um, you know, something that they're really not interested in. And I think also they have a lot of issues with body image, right, and uh, spectatoring and really not being in the moment because they're really not enjoying what it is that they're doing. And I think that one of the famous quotes that I have heard and I absolutely love is Emily Nagoski, who she said, she said once that um, to have sex is to have, let me actually, <laughs> I'm going to pull this up because yeah, I think, sure. I'll I think look, it's look actually, oh, here we go. So it's to want sex is to have sex worth wanting. Right. So it's hard to want something that you don't even enjoy, that you're not finding pleasure in. And so I think that that is oftentimes what women come to me for is that the decreased libido is the decreased arousal. 
And, you know, why are they just not interested? And it's something that their husband wants, but it's something that they don't want. And they just, you know, they, and they think that it's an easy fix, right? They think like, well, maybe if there's just some medication that I can get, you know, maybe if there's something that I can do that doesn't really require any time, then it'll be fine. And, you know, my relationship will be fine. And then I can just move on again. It's like a chore, right? It's just something that, to check off their um, to-do list. And then once it's done, it's done. And it's not something that they really experience. That is very interesting. So you're saying there's decreased arousal, there's um, bo- negative body image. Was there like maybe a third one yeah. that you also see? Yes. And let me see here. So, you know, I think that, so we said decrease, so decrease arousal, decrease libido, right? And feeling oftentimes, you know, they feel like sex is dirty or shameful. And so they don't feel comfortable with their bodies. And I think it's also a lot that uh, the sex negativity, right? So having grown up with something like that, I think that that also affects how we feel about sex. And I think that is actually something that I really focus on is about the mindset. And it's about how do you feel Uh, when you hear the word sex, right? Where does it show up in your body? Some people, you know, will tense up. And so then you have to kind of get to the root of that and figure out like, well, why does that happen for you? You know, perhaps people have experienced trauma, right? Some people have experienced abuse. And so that's where the therapists come into play. And that's where it's really important that women work through the issues or um, the traumas of the past so that they can move forward. Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful segue because my next question was going to be, what is the cultural baggage that leads to such negative thoughts about sex for Muslims in particular, because you are the Muslim sex coach. Um, you get a lot of interesting comments sometimes I'm sure on your DMS and in the comments on your social medias, uh, social media accounts. So Is there anything that kind of is something that comes over and over again as people react to some of the content that you're producing that's sex positive? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, oftentimes uh, what I will get is that, um, you know, of course, it's it's the trolls on social media, but that's okay. (laughs) That's what you can say trolls. You can call them whatever you want. Like I do. (laughs) But that's what makes it stronger, right? But anyway, so, um, right. So oftentimes, you know, people will be like, well, where's your, uh, you know, Haya, where's the, where's the modesty in this? You know, you shouldn't be speaking about this openly. And, and so, you know, my response to that is that there's nothing explicit, right? There's nothing, we're not talking about a specific position. We're not talking about a specific act, right? This, Mm -hmm. these are, these things are in generalities. And the reason why is because, in Islam, it is encouraged. You can talk about these things, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing. And, you know, the Prophet, peace be upon him, sallam, was very open about sex and intimacy. And nothing, you know, again, it's nothing that's going to be vulgar or obscene, but it's going to be something that normalizes the conversation. And that's really what my aim is, especially on social media, right? Is to decrease the stigma that is around sex so that we can perhaps change from a culture that is very sex negative to something that is sex positive, or even at least just neutral, right? And Mm -hmm. unbiased. 
we don't have to project our negativity onto our friends or onto our children because then the cycle just continues and then they have that sex negativity and then the, you know will it ever change where we can become a society that is very sex positive and actually embrace our own roots right islam is a very sex positive religion and to be honest when i learned that myself it just blew my mind i had no idea and i think that for me it actually gave me permission right so we are always i think especially as women especially you know as people pleasers we are always seeking permission whether it's consciously or unconsciously and i think for me learning that in islam because i am actually a very religious person i know i'm not wearing a hijab <laughs> that's always the next question on the tiktok and whatever what's your hijab oh, right okay. but um but the thing is is that for me it was really important to know that islam is a sex positive religion and that you know allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the prophet peace be upon him you know encouraged us to learn about it and that women have sexual rights in Islam and that you know the prophet peace be upon him encouraged men to always you know give women their rights and fulfill um and give them sexual pleasure right and also right. a woman can and you know this as well as I do that a woman can actually you know have a divorce if she's not sexually pleased in the bedroom so you know all of these things showed to me that women have all these rights in Islam and and yet you know we're not taught at least in some cultures i i was never taught that women actually had sexual rights i didn't know that um right. and yeah. so i think that the more we learn then the more we give ourselves permission to learn Hey listeners, Mommy One Muslim is bringing you yet another retreat. In fact, our retreats have birthed their own name now. Fill up your cup retreats or FUYC. We're kind of proud of that one. Women carry everything for everyone all of the time and we know we can't pour from an empty cup. So we've curated an FUYC retreat in Dallas, Texas this February 17th through the 19th at a private retreat center. The theme being introspection in seclusion. We have limited beds available for the entire weekend experience, including room board and activities fostering introspection. That is being okay, being alone with just ourselves, such as yoga, dhikr circles, guided meditations, spa services, hijama, and of course, in the company of women who are doing the same thing alongside us, filling up their cups by loving the space they fill and embracing their God-given missions, whatever those might be. We expect attendees will find both there. Can't stay the whole weekend but crave some time to recharge and repurpose yourself? Get a day pass that also includes food and activities for the day, and of course all attendees get some practical and fancy swag to take home and hopefully continue filling their cups. See y'all there. How do we communicate about sex to our growing kids when, you know, it's like you want to be sex positive, but I think the the worry that a lot of parents have is, well, I don't want to make it seem like it's this wonderful thing that they should all experience and go out and do like now, because you know, if you tell kids something so fun, they're going to want to do it right now. Um, how do I make it sex positive without making them, without encouraging them to have sex prematurely? Um, how can we be sex neutral? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know. To, I think my philosophy is that if you, if you talk about it, if you tell somebody about it, I don't think that they're going to run out and do it. I really don't. Um, so I think that the way that we become sex positive is that we are, you know, we have to examine our own thoughts, right? I think we start from that. 
We have to examine our own thoughts. And then, you know, how do we feel about sex? And if it's very negative, then, you know, how are those thoughts serving us? If they're serving us, great. If they're not, then how can we change that, right? So we ourselves have to become sex positive and, or else, you know, at least be neutral about it. Um, and so then, you know, we can then talk to our children about it. But then also, I think what needs to happen is that, I think we need to talk to our children about just the phases of life, right? And what happens and about puberty and and speak about it with a sense of awe, right? Because that's what it is. It's amazing, right? That you have this little baby first that we start out from like, you know, an egg and a sperm. And then, I mean, it's just really like, subhanAllah, like really just like, I, I feel like, you know, Surah Rahman, right? Like, uh, you know, and which of these, to the favors right. of the Lord deny. Right. Yeah. So it's just, you know, you start out from like this egg and this sperm, and then you, you know, it grows up to like a fetus, and then the baby is where, and then all the changes that happens, right? And then the baby grows up and this and that. And I think that if we describe it as that, um, I think then it's more of like a miracle, right? It's instead of something that is perhaps risky or you know, negative or dirty or shameful, it becomes something that's very beautiful. And I think that if we can teach that to our children, you know, hopefully they'll see it as something very beautiful and something very precious. And then I think that we can change that idea of, you know, that sex negativity to sex positivity. Also, I think that it's so important to not to pathologize it, right? Like it's not something bad. It's something good that happens to us. And also, I don't know if you ever saw this movie, but I remember seeing this movie a long time ago. It's called Interview with a Vampire with Tom Cruise. I saw bits of it, but I wasn't allowed to watch it because it was like, yeah. oh, too sexy yeah, it for is. kids. It yeah. was, I didn't watch the whole thing either, but I just remember like one small piece of the movie and it was about where like this girl is having a conversation with, um, you know, Tom Cruise and she's saying to him, you know, he, she is watching uh, an, an older woman, you know, do her hair or whatever. And he asks her what she's looking at. And, and she says, you know, I'm just watching this woman and she's older because, you know, this little girl became a vampire and so she would never change. She'd never but age. She'd yeah. never age. And so, you know, and she was just admiring the beauty of it. So I think that if we explain to our children that just the beauty of the process of just, you know, going from, you know, adolescence to teenage to adulthood and what happens and then the responsibilities that also come with it, right? So it's not just Saxon, it's not always, you know, it's not just all fun, which it can be and hopefully it will be for somebody, you know, once they're married. Sure. In the context of marriage, of course, that's what we always talk about with um, in Islam and uh, intercourse. But, you know, is the is also the responsibility that comes with that as well, right? I mean, just, you know, you know that I'm an OBGYN and just recently this past week, I did a postpartum visit on a girl that was 15. Oh man! And so she still has the rest of her life to live. And yet now she has this little baby. So I think that, you know, we start with our own thoughts and our own attitudes about regarding sex and then, um, you know, teach our children in the best possible way that we can. Yeah. Yeah. And what I found recently was really important. I did not know that my 14 year old did not know, <laughs> but I was like, he was like, what? You have to have a period to have a baby? And I'm like, yeah, once a woman has a period, that's when she can get pregnant. And he was like, you know, he was thinking on his sister, like, oh man, so she can't pregnant, but she's only 
this old. And I'm like, yeah, you know, and in some places that happens to girls who are not physically, emotionally, mentally ready for that. Um, And I was leading it back to him. Like, that's why you need to be careful because everybody on your high school campus can get pregnant. So that's why nobody should be messing around with each other. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I I never want to do that. But like his concern was for his sister, you know, and at the same time, like his knowledge is increasing, like, oh, you have to have a period to get pregnant. And it's, it's shocking to me every time that that's not general knowledge for teenagers. Yes. Like they don't yes. know Absolutely. that, you know, puberty means now pregnancy is possible. And I think it's equally important for the unaffected gender, the males that of in our lives, like you're a mom of boys, yes. for them to understand that, yeah, you could end up messing up somebody's life just like somebody could mess up your sister's life. So remember that responsibility goes both ways. You know, it's, it's a societal responsibility. And as parents, for us to explain not just the biology, but the consequences of biology, I think is really, really important. And I think that can be done neutrally and very sterilely. So I like to keep it really clinical at our kitchen table, but, or like this was on a car drive and my son was just like, like I could, I could feel the steam coming out of his ears. Like, wow, like my mind just blew open. I'm like feeling really good about it Um, to keep those lines of communication open and consequences. I think natural consequences, not if you do this, like you're going to ruin your life or, you know, if you have sex, like, you know, this could happen and, you know, the rest of your life is ruined. Like, don't, don't make it so catastrophic, like, because then they're going to be too scared to come talk to you about it and they're going to go get their information from somebody Absolutely. else. And that's not what we Absolutely. want. So let's take this, you're talking about like this beautiful development and the miracle of development. And I want to not just talk about like our teenagers. I want to talk about us as Muslim women and moms. What are some of the changes with aging that you think lend to better or worse sex? Because it could go either way as we're, you know, coming into our sexual, I I think epiphany in our later years. Yeah. So I think that that's, you know, a really great question because there are definitely lots of pros and um, a few cons, but <laughs> definitely more pros. I think that what happens is that, you know, as we get older, so as as Muslim women, um, most Muslim women, you know, have not had any sexual experience outside of marriage, right? And so I think that in our early years, we're all learning. And then as we get older, I think we become more confident. We know what we like, what we, we know what we don't like, we know what we want. And I think that that confidence actually leads to a better sex life because you know we are not willing to put up with things that we don't want to do or things that are not pleasurable to us right and so i think that confidence is what becomes better as we get older in life um the things of course you know as we do age things change our our bodies change you know perhaps we're not as fit as we used to be when we were younger uh perhaps things start to sag a little bit and things like that i think our body image right so i think those are the thoughts that often come into our head is you know perhaps we don't view ourselves as attractive as we once were or something like that so i think that body image you know plays a big part um and i think that also what happens is that once we start going through perimenopause and then it hit menopause right? The changes that happen at that time. So then we start to notice that we, you know, perhaps have vaginal dryness, or perhaps there's pain within our course, or perhaps that, you know, you have difficulty becoming aroused, or perhaps there's, you know, 
decrease in lubrication or things like that. So I think that, um, you know, perhaps women also get, um, you know, recurrent UTIs, right? So that can also be a problem. You get hot flashes, you get night sweats. And so those are all the things that can happen with a decreasing estrogen in our body. And so, but, you know, the great news is, is that there are solutions, right? So we don't have to right. live with the pain. We don't have to live with the, you know, say that a woman is getting recurrent UTIs. You can get vaginal estrogen, which can help pump up that tissue in the vagina. And so that you're not having that pain with um, intercourse. And if you are, then you're using lubrication, right? And that there's no shame in using lubrication and that just because, you know, you may be aroused, but then you may not be lubricated. So then you just use a lubricant, right? So there is definitely, there is a solution to the problems that may arise as we age, but that we know that we can always reach out to a gynecologist or a family doctor or somebody and get the help that we need. And vaginal estrogen is very good. And, you know, a lot more people are talking about vaginal estrogen and using it throughout. And there are very um, vaginal estrogen, because it acts locally to the surrounding tissue, there's a very low systemic effects, right, throughout the whole body. And so uh, typically for most women, it is very safe to use that estrogen. Yeah. And in my practice, that's what I've always used because most of the women that I encounter is, are very hesitant to take systemic um, hormone replacement therapy. So I'm like, yeah, but your life is compromised and your husband is here with you saying that y'all collectively need to do something about this because he he's not happy, you know, and you're not happy because he's not happy. Like this is affecting so many other dynamics in your relationship with, and at this point in your life where you no longer have the responsibility necessarily of raising kids, the physical work of motherhood and fatherhood that you have, like this should be your time, you know, together to reconnect, like to really like each other and just be free and what's holding you back is some of these physical changes yeah. that accompany aging. Yeah. It is completely treatable. Uh, it doesn't have to be systemic. Uh, it doesn't have to be permanent. It can be something. So typically like I'll cycle, I'll be like, okay, use it for seven days on seven days off kind of thing. Because I mean, nobody's having sex every single day. I haven't encountered that couple <laughs> yet. I don't know if you have, <laughs> but um, you know, I'll, I'll make modifications based on what they're requesting and based on their concerns. And, you know, it, it's, it's all doable, but a common question that people have is who do I ask for help? And I'm glad that you mentioned your primary care physician or your OBGYN would be perfect places to start. Not Cosmo, yeah. not TikTok, <laughs> definitely not your girlfriend down yeah. the street. Going back to the bigger, like more abstract concept of how do we help Muslim women overcome some of their hesitations around sexual agency, around having that voice that you were talking about in the beginning, that was your inspiration to be an OBGYN in the first mm -hmm. place. Yeah. So I think that that's where, you know, the coaching comes in. And so I think, you know, so what I do is I actually have a four-step process that I use when I'm working with women. And again, it always starts with their thoughts. And when they hear sex, where does that show up for them? How do they respond? You know, what do they think of? And, and then I start from there. So it's always talking about the mindset because that's where, so the biggest sexual organ that we have, right, is our brain. So if our brain is not into what we're hoping to achieve, if it's not in line with what we believe, then we're really not going to do it. And we are not going to make the changes that will make that 
result possible, right? So first we have to work on mindset. So that's where I start. And then once we talk about mindset, then we also talk about um, the female anatomy. Because, you know, you'd be surprised, and I know, you know, that you and I are physicians, so uh, perhaps you wouldn't be surprised, actually, <laughs> is, you know, sometimes patients do not know or even understand their own bodies. I literally just, again, this past week had a patient say to me that, um, you know, she was, she had a, a, a bladder infection. She thought she had a bladder infection. It was hurting when she was peeing and that she knew for sure there was something wrong with her vagina because she was having problems when she peed. Um, so as you and I know, and hopefully most of your listeners and viewers know that, you know, women have three holes in their vulvar region, um, you know, in their external genitalia, we have the urethra where we pee from, we have the vagina where, you know, people can have intercourse and babies come out of, and then we have the rectum where poop comes out of, but this patient, you know, unfortunately didn't know that where she urinated from was also different from where um, you know, babies came out of so, her menstrual flow came correct. from. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So, so that being said, you know, I, I go over the mindset, then we go over the anatomy so that everyone's on the same playing field here and that we understand and we go over uh, erogenous areas and zones and we go over orgasm and things like that. And then our next, the next module is uh, talking about Islam right? And talking about giving yourself permission and going over what um, the Prophet peace be upon him, and the Quran say about sex and intimacy, because like myself, I'm thinking that a lot of women don't know that women have a right to sexual pleasure in Islam. And that right was given to us over 1400 years ago. And only recently has the WHO included sexual pleasure in their definition of what uh, comprehensive mm -hmm. sexual education should be. So just knowing that gives should give us agency, right? Should give us the permission that we need, perhaps that we are seeking to find out and learn about sex and sexual pleasure and, you know, the things that we like, the things that we don't like. And then the last module that I go over is the way forward, right? So that now that we have all this information, now that we know, where do we go from here? How can we incorporate what we just learned into our daily lives and move forward with ourselves and with our spouse? So that's your four-pronged approach to reestablishing our sexual agency. And I think that that is beautiful and simple. And I'm so glad it's only four steps and it all sounds really doable. Yes. So really excited about that. <laughs> and as a nod to your anatomy lesson, that was the conversation that my daughter and I had in the car um, earlier this week where she was like, wait, there's three holes. And I was like, oh crap, mom has not done a good job. I thought we did this on the diagram. Let's do it again in the car. So I'm like this with her in the car driving and doing this. And she was like, oh, okay. All right. Now I get it. So, um, yeah, it's something that constantly, I think just needs to be reviewed until inshallah, by the time they're adults, they're going to get it, yeah. you know, so that they're going to be able to go to their doctor and say, it's burning when I pee, like it's not my vagina. <laughs> they shouldn't be saying that to their doctor. So it's, it's okay if you do, 
you know, because I'm sure you educated that patient as well. I'm glad um, that she had you to go to. So this was all super enlightening. I know like a lot of people benefited from this and inshallah, um, they're going to find your links in our show notes to go look up how to find you as a coach, to go to your social media and learn from you over there because you have a lot of good content that's educational as well as entertaining. I think they're going to get a kick out of it. But what we like to close with is a rapid fire to help our audience kind of get to know you better. So it has nothing to do well, not necessarily has anything to do with what we talked about today, but I think it's a lot of fun. We like to put 90 seconds on the clock. There are no rules except you say the first thing that comes to the top of your head. There's no right answer. The right answer is whatever like you think of immediately. Okay. All right. So we'll start with the first question we always ask our audience members is what book are you reading right now? I am reading um, the 15, what is it? The 14 uh, ways to grow. It's like a self-help ways to go. Yeah, okay. It's a self-help book. So love it. We all need more of that for sure. So um, you're a doctor now, you practice OBGYN and you're the Muslim sex coach. But what was your first job? My first job that I ever had, I was a physical therapy assistant. So I helped uh, in a nursing home. Yep. And I helped uh, patients with their physical therapy and uh, bringing them to their uh, services and stuff like that. So yeah. Oh, that makes my heart so happy, you know, geriatrics, yeah. ah, old people. How old were you when you had that job? Um, I was in my first year of undergrad. So maybe like 18, 17, 18. Very nice. Very nice. Okay. So we talked a lot about sex today because that's the subject for today. We could talk about it until we're blue in the face. You and I, I know, but what's one subject that you would be glad to never speak about again? Never speak about again. Um, <laughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> good answer <laughs> i love it enough said mic drop uh what's your most common impulse buy is there like a category of things that you're like gotta have it oh, gotta buy it cashmere sweaters <laughs> that is well uh, yes you have beautiful sweaters all the time why didn't i think of that okay very nice what's the worst thing you've ever eaten at a restaurant uh <laughs> um the worst thing i don't know sometimes so this is what, what always happens i always order something that i don't like and my husband then what he does is he he says to me he goes okay what is the second thing that you would order if you wanted to order so then he orders the second thing and then inevitably i don't like my first thing and so then he switches meals with me He's a good husband. He switches meals with oh, me so know. that I can have my second choice and he eats at something that I don't like. I really, like he knows you that well. <laughs> What's your second choice? Right. That's amazing. Yeah, he's definitely a keeper. Yeah. Um, I like this question. It's a new one. If your life was a story, what would it be titled? Ooh, mm, that is a good This one. is good for the Dr. Sutherf Lodi book that you're going to write. Yes, yes, it is. Um, it's going to be called Give Yourself Permission. I love it. I love it. That is copyrighted officially. Nobody can take that. And I think that's a perfect way to close this episode of the podcast. Everybody give yourself permission by Dr. Sutta Floaty. Pre-order that at Barnes and Noble today. <laughs> I love it. All right. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Thanks. This is for your sexual health, your friend's sexual health, your children's sexual health. Tune in for the remainder of our episodes this series. Assalamualaikum, everyone.
Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzman Momming While Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Mommy While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Thank you.